Hi, this is uh, Daniel Warren Johnson, the writer-artist of Extremity and Murder Falcon, and you're listening to the Cave of Solitude podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Cave of Solitude. I am your host, Eric Anthony, and this week we have the privilege of having on the show the creator, writer, artist, extraordinaire of such books as Space Mullet, Extremity, pardon me, and the current title that's hitting the shelves, Murder Falcon. It's none other than Daniel Warren Johnson. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for agreeing to be here. Oh, that's great. It's great to have you on. I got to say, to start the show off, I always like to throw a little bit of compliments the way of the guest. And the I, I came in contact with your, your work, a friend of, friend of the show and a local comic book artist, Shane Heron, who's been on the show many, many times, middle of okay. the night, he sends me photos on uh, Facebook Messenger. And he's like, you gotta, you gotta read this book. You gotta look at this. This is amazing. He's like sending all kinds of kinds of expletives saying how great this book Extremity is that I hadn't heard of yet. He's like, you gotta check this out. This guy's fantastic. And then we, we did a a top five artists wizard style. We, we did like a a countdown of our favorite artists currently working. And you came in number one on his list. And I think there's nothing better than other artists appreciating an artist's work. So I just wanted to share that to start the show. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you for telling me that. That's really great. I really appreciate that. Yeah, and, and Shane I had a couple of uh, questions he wanted to ask you, but most importantly is we all want you to come to Toronto, it, it, at, to one of our cons in the near future. We'd all love to meet you and uh, have you at one of our shows. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I the only part of Canada that I've been to is, uh, uh, is the correct side of... Um, Niagara Falls, so I need to I need to rectify that. Yeah, you I need to visit Canada more. At least for a baseball game, we're Toronto and Boston, same division, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen soon. Awesome. So speaking of the Red Sox, I gotta say congratulations. I know you're a Red Sox fan, correct? Thank you so much. Yes, that's great. How do, how are you feeling? Are you still on a high, or is it settled down now? You know, I'm still in a high. It's a little removed for me because I don't actually live in Boston. I live in Chicago. Right. Um, I grew up there, but um, so. But I saw when I when I was exercising, I, I saw the uh, the parade, and it made me a little homesick. Uh, but I'm so glad that they won. I'm proud of my team, and it was a great season. I've been watching them since the beginning of the season this year. I have like MLB TV, so I I bought that, and I, I've been. Uh, keeping up with them very closely so it feels really good to see them go all the way so how long have you uh like being from boston obviously the red sox are a huge part of the culture there but what was it about baseball for you that you know just clicks that makes you love the sport well it was the biggest sport that my dad was into so Mm. he was had a big hand and kind of uh gosh it kind of like introducing me to the sport and more so than any others. And I played it when I was little, I was terrible at it and I didn't actually <laughs> like playing it very much. Um, I wish I could have had a better like appreciation for it looking back on it. But, um, you know, I was so young and like, uh, I was, I'm, I was not, nor have I ever been very, uh, athletically, athletically oriented. But, um, even as I started to get older and I didn't play it anymore, 
my dad and I would still watch games together, so it was kind of a point of connection for me and my dad, uh, and you know something to do together. And then when I started going to high school and a little bit into college, we'd usually go to at least one game a year, um, which was a really big deal for us. And uh, it's so it's been one of those things that you know is definitely handed down to me from my dad and my dad actually grew up on long island so he's a mets fan oh, wow. um, but when he came he, he had been living in massachusetts for at least eight years before i even was born so he eventually you know he's a red sox fan as well and he passed that on to me so uh and as far as the actual sport goes and like watching it it forces me as a watcher to kind of take stock of everything that's happening in the game and it makes me I don't know. It just has this romantic tension to it, which uh, no other sport has. Uh, it's a uh, it's a game that involves a singular person mm-hmm. when playing, but also the whole team. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. There's just this uh, there's there's this intensity about it that I feel like a lot of people say that it's boring, but I think it's the opposite. I think that it gives back what you it gives back however much attention you put into it. Um, and I also love it that it's a game that I can have my friends over and we can talk while the game's going on. Right. Or if we go to a game, it's also just a great hangout. Like it's just a long, uninterrupted period of time where you're watching a game and you're forced to be outside of yourself for a little bit. Um, so that's that's why I love it and appreciate it. And I feel like there's multiple ways to approach baseball. You know, from more casual to more intense, as far as like the levels of fandom go. But um, that's another reason why I like it is it's the multiple ways you can approach it too. So it's magical for sure. Yeah. I, I think it's out of all sports, it's the perfect storm of something amazing happening. I mean, every yep. sport has it, you know, you got your, your overtime goal, your three point buzzer, buzzer beater, uh, your goals in soccer, but there's something about baseball where it's that you're, you're waiting. And when it happens, there's nothing that tops that feeling. I just recently went to uh the one game I went to in Toronto this year, because you know they were horrible, so I wasn't paying any attention. <laughs> but uh, me and uh, another podcaster, Adam Chapman, we actually recorded an episode sitting in the Rogers Center, and they were getting you know killed by I think it was the Tampa Bay Devil, uh, the Rays. But sure. then, but then they it was just in it was September twenty second the game, and they ended up coming back in the ninth inning, scoring six runs with a walk off home run. It was, wow. it, was, it was like we were totally out of it. Like you said, it was a moment where you're just sitting there. We were talking about, you know, hobbies, comics, life, not paying any attention to the game because they're getting killed. And then as soon as we, you know, stopped recording the one of the most amazing games I had ever seen. So like like you said, it's just magic waiting to happen. It is. And also just the fact you mentioned like overtime. The fact that baseball rests on no sort of time constraints is also pretty incredible. When you look at so many sports that are based around a clock or a countdown, the fact that baseball could keep going and going and going, I mean, it's its crazy, and it makes it that much more cool. Yeah, it's true. What's, what's a favorite baseball memory for you? I would imagine 2005, was it, when they, when they came back and beat the Yankees? Uh, 2004, and 2004. you guessed right. Uh, I was in high school, and you know those games would go so late. And I remember my dad would have to like go to bed because he had to work, and uh, it was like. Uh, but I remember he let me stay up to watch the game uh, where David Ortiz hit the walk off home run. Uh, I believe it was game. It was game four against the Yankees in 2004. The uh, for the pennant, and uh, 
they came back and uh david ortiz had a walk-off home run to win the game and it just rallied them and they won four and uh it was just incredible i mean i get like emotional thinking about it now because it meant so much <laughs> to me back then um but you know because i had been you know i i was not old enough to appreciate the ball going through oh gosh oh what was his name I should know this as I'm, I'm my fan credit is, is uh, draining when the ball went through the guy's uh, legs on first base when they lost the series in the oh, 80s. Oh, right, right, right. Yep. Um, the fact the that I don't know this name is terrible, but oh, well, um, it's something that my father and my uncle would talk about in hushed whispers when we watch games together, uh, you know, like how terrible it was. And then going through the rest of the years, you know, I was there in the, the shilling years with the red Sox and uh you know them just on a struggle bus for so long and i also remember them losing to the yankees in 2003 which was just brutal to watch uh to watch them lose and um so it felt so good when they won in 04 it was just something special so uh and the whole city just like you know whole the whole the whole metro west area just like folded in on itself everybody couldn't handle it it was great I think that was one of the, the, the best stories in sports that I've ever, like, after that, there became a lot more coming back from 3-0, and but nothing will top that, especially with the, the curse of the Bambino and all, like, the legend and myth about it. I remember watching that with my, my little brother. I was babysitting, at the, babysitting him at the time. I was about 20, 21 years old, and there was nothing on TV except for the playoffs, and I got completely entrenched in the zone watching this this happen i couldn't believe it because game three i remember the yankees winning like 19 to 1 it was something uh, ridiculous so yeah. that's pretty oh, boy. great baseball man this is the best <laughs> so talking about some of the things uh from your childhood when you were young um in in the back of murder falcon you give a little a short essay about playing guitar since you were 11 years old what are some yep. of the things in your childhood other than playing guitar and as well as playing guitar that you were in love with? Oh, man. So, uh, you know, it comes with a bit of a caveat. Like, I was homeschooled from uh, third grade through 12th grade. So a lot of the same kind of cultural milieu that most of my peers were into, I, I was kind of missing out on, um, especially as I got into, like, middle school and high school. Mm-hmm. Um, but things that do stick out to me were, were um, you know, I, I'd always a deep love for the Transformers, mm-hmm. um, the G1 cartoon series that was on uh, reruns uh, in the afternoons, which I would watch religiously. Hmm. And uh, I would draw them a lot. I remember drawing the Transformers a lot. Uh, I spent a lot of time at my local library. Um, and that was kind of before they had any cool comics there. Uh, they basically had the news pr- newspaper prints, the, new, the reprints. Um, so like uh, Foxtrot and Garfield and Calvin and Hobbes was a big one. Um, they also had Tintin. Tintin was really a big part of you Those know are good me comics, growing though. up. Those are good comics. It's a great comic. Yeah. It holds up. Um, the illustrations are tremendous. Um, and I was, you know, I was a, I was devouring any sort of comic that I could get my hands on. I mean, it didn't matter if it was words with pictures, I was going to read it. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't have the money to, uh, like, go to the local uh, bookstore. And even then, you know, 
the comic book section at like a Barnes and Noble or a Borders at the time was very small. Um, it wasn't really until I started hitting high school that they had any sort of selection. Um, so that was, that was a big part of, that was a big part of my big love was, uh, definitely Calvin and Hobbes. I was obsessed with Calvin and Hobbes and, uh, it kind of, it was been a huge part of, uh, you know, me growing up along with my artistic journey. Um, and then also, uh, where I lived in Framingham, Massachusetts, there's a, uh, art museum in the, right next to the library called, um, uh, the Danforth Museum of Art, and they had a art school that was connected to the museum, and I would go there multiple times a week for art lessons. Uh, initially for, like, you know, the whole general kind of, like, paper mache and crafting and drawing and stuff and painting, but then it started shifting to more focused, uh, like, fine art figure drawing skills, which I started taking, like, in fifth or sixth grade and did not stop taking until I graduated high school. Um, so it was another big part of my journey as well. What was it that appealed to you about drawing? I mean, some people just have, I guess, the ability to see perspective. Some people find that just it, it entertains them. What was it for you that you just couldn't get enough of it? That's an interesting question. You know, I think it was. It wasn't so much that like. It wasn't so much that there was something that it was giving me. It's just it's something that I had to do. Mm. Um, it was just like a part of me. It was like a natural expression. If I had spare time, I was drawing, um, which you know you have a lot of as a kid. And I'd see these things like Transformers and Calvin and Hobbes and dinosaur books or whatever, and I just get so excited about the images that I saw. And I had to try and figure out how to make that myself. And it just translated to me trying to draw these things. And I drew a lot, like a lot. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's funny cause I just wanted to draw the, the quote, you know, the quote, cool stuff like big muscles, big guns, you know, and it wasn't until I started going to these figure drawing classes that my teacher there was like, look, I'm all for you drawing these things, right? I want you to draw guys with big muscles. But unless you know how to draw a person with small muscles, like a regular person, you're not going to be able to draw the big muscles well. Hmm. And that always really stuck with me. Um, but as far as like why I drew, it wasn't so much of a why. It was more of a must. <laughs> Interesting. So was it similar to the the feeling that it gave you that you got from playing the guitar was it that ability to express yourself in this way because some people write some people you know may do a journal or poetry was this your way of doing that not initially because even when i was starting to draw it was mostly it was in first grade mm -hmm. and i figured out that i could draw power rangers better than any of the other kids in the <laughs> class and i just did it to try and make friends <laughs> um and then I, I found out that I really did enjoy it. It brought me a lot of peace, but I wasn't necessarily trying to say anything with my art. I was just trying to draw Optimus Prime correctly. Um, it was almost like a challenge that I was continuing to try and overcome. Uh, whereas with the guitar, it started out as a challenge, and then it became more of an artistic expression for me as I got older, um, and I was able to master the instrument a little bit more. And I guess along the same lines, you know, art, art, like visual art for me, like drawing, has always been such a big part of me that, I, and I've done it so it's just been so much of my bloodstream that, um, 
it wasn't I, I was just doing it so much and I was it almost like uh, extended drawing practice sessions I guess with figure drawing and Optimus Prime and mm-hmm. drawing a tree or whatever and it wasn't until I started thinking about my own stories that I really feel like I started taking my art and my my lines into something that would be considered expression through story um, which is you know what brought me into comics and uh you know, so I think for the majority of my life, until I was about 24, art was a uh, was like a craft for me to get better at. And uh, it wasn't until I started making Space Mullet, my webcomic, that I started thinking about how I can express myself through that art. Um, so yeah. Did you did you at any point uh, collect comic books, or did you have like a, like you mentioned Transformers, Calvin and Hobbes that were very important to you? And I think a lot of that now that you mention it, uh, I can see it in your work, especially with with all of the the spaceships and yeah. It, I mean, it, it definitely lends itself to a Transformers aesthetic in a way. But was there things that you enjoyed reading or collecting as you were in high school, perhaps? Um, I really started getting into manga in high school. Okay. Um, so I, w- I but you know, it was hard cause I didn't have a ton of money, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so I didn't read a ton of manga. I'd like be reading it in Barnes and Noble as much as I could. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of pre manga in libraries as well. Okay. So I was collecting comics, but not in the collector's sense. I just wanted to look at the pictures. And I remember, speaking of Transformers, I read a lot of the Transformers comics that Marvel put out in the late 80s. Right. Um, which, you know, I'd go into the, I'd go uh, bin hunting for at comic book stores, which was really fun. I remember there was a comic that had a big influence on me. It was Ed McGuinness's Deadpool. Okay. Uh, that he did with Joe Kelly, I think. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, I think you're right. Yep. I got that trade paperback. That was when I was maybe in middle school. That was a huge deal. Um, you know, but I also my parents were like pretty uh, intense with like the protective kind of uh, we don't want you to read anything inappropriate kind of vibe. Right. Um, so anything that I could get my hands on, like if it was, again, words and pictures, I was going to try and get it into the house. Mm-hmm. And I remember I bought with my own money, I think it was allowance money I saved up, and I bought the Battle Chasers trade paperback at Barnes & Noble, and those, like, there's no way my parents would have been able to handle those boobs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, looking back on it now, I'm like, how did I, oh my god, this is so stupid, right? Uh, I still have a very... Uh, soft spot for battle chasers in my heart but those boobs that make me insane i'm like this is so stupid <laughs> uh but i remember i hid that from my parents for like four years um because it was just i was like there's no way they're gonna be okay with this <laughs> <laughs> but that that trade paperback was a huge part of me as a kid and uh also hunting for all those issues because it went up till nine i believe but they never collected it so I was every comic book store I go to in the Metro West area. I'd be like, "Do you guys have Battle Chasers?" Like that didn't that end like four years ago? <laughs> and I'd go into the get just hunting, hunting, and hunting. So that's the best part, though, about like your teenage years is finding that thing that you know your parents, if they knew really about it, they would hate it. Like that's you, oh, got, yeah. you have to go through that at at some point in your teen years, right? So, I think you're right. Um, I think you're definitely right, and. You know, for me, you know, uh, kind of a homeschooled environment 
it was just I'm glad, I'm really my parents were awesome I had a great childhood but like trying to get anything that like wasn't like Christian rock into the house was difficult <laughs> <laughs> so with, with that in mind like I you bring up an interesting point because you you were um, I guess you could say sheltered and, and your parents were protective and didn't want any sort of uh, immoral influences on you from the outside world how did that um, does that affect your your work to this day does it have any is there certain areas of storytelling or subject matter that you won't venture into you know <clears throat> pardon me i don't know if i'd say that i mean i think it was i honestly think it was good for me to be sheltered up to a point um because i mean there's a lot of terrible stuff out there um and if it's not terrible i feel like there's a lot of stuff in the world that you know, I wouldn't want my daughter looking at until she was old enough to really process it and be able to distinguish like what is appropriate in the um, you know in the storytelling world in a fantasy world and what is appropriate right. for real life. Right. Um, and I think every kid's different that can handle that. But um, for me, you know, I I don't think about it that much. I, it's honestly. Uh, you know, when I'm drawing, I think, I mean, I was from my commissions and my style of art is pretty clear that I'm not afraid of violence. <laughs> um, you know, maybe that's like a reaction, you know, like I go overboard because I was repressed for so long or yeah, whatever. Could, yeah, it could be. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but most of the time I just have fun drawing stuff and, uh, but I don't really, I may, all this maybe is subconscious. I don't know, but it's not something that I consciously think about as I'm working. Um, I'm thankful that, you know, my parents for, well, I was sheltered. My parents, you know, paid for every art class and they drove me there twice a week and, um, you know, they wouldn't let me show up late and uh, right. they wouldn't let me quit guitar either. I tried to quit guitar. My dad was like, no way, that's not happening. And, uh, they forced me and they forced me to like keep taking lessons. And, uh, so I'm very thankful to them for that. Yeah. I, think, I guess. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, no, go ahead. Continue your, with your thought. No, just that, um, you know, I, if anything, you know, it's also been kind of cool to like stumble on things that my generation takes for granted now, mm. um, that I just had no way of obtaining when I was younger and I'm 31 now. I just saw Wayne's world like two months ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Sometimes it's good to be able to go back and appreciate those things for the for the first time with a, you know, a fresh a fresh eye or a fresh ear. There's lots yeah, of stuff. Totally. There's a bunch of comics that you know people would say you've never read that. How could you have never read that? But now going back and revisiting it, I don't have to. You know, I'm not shackled by what everyone necessarily or, or what people are experiencing as it's coming out. You you kind of experience it yourself, and that's all good. I was going to yeah. say before, you know, about your parents not letting you uh, quit guitar lessons. I'm starting to realize as I get older, I'm not a parent myself, but a lot of times the the parents that make you do the things at a young age that for the time you might hate them that they're making you do it you know whether it's getting braces whether it's taking guitar lessons but they're instilling some sort of a discipline in you that pays off later that's that's totally. the sign of like good parenting like you hate me and that's okay you can hate me now but you'll realize <laughs> later that i was the one who actually loved you because i think a lot of people today don't too many parents are trying to make sure their kid likes them all the time 
Sure. And and the kids, you see, like they're bossing the parents around. It's like, man, what's <laughs> happened to the world? So I don't know. I think it's a good. It, it's nice to hear that you appreciate that sort of like they didn't let me quit, even though I would have wanted to. Nowadays, people are like they don't want to do it, so don't let them do it. Right. Um, you were you were a guitar player. You were uh, homeschooled, so you were scared to bring the the inappropriate comics in. So how did you get the heavy metal in? <laughs> were your parents cool with the heavy metal music? <laughs> oh, I remember the heaviest record I had that I was able to listen to for the longest time was DC Talks Jesus Freak album, <laughs> which, looking back, was not very heavy. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, it took a long time for, this is a point of contention between me and my dad, especially me trying to listen to music that he thought was inappropriate. And, uh, it wasn't, I didn't really start finding my musical identity and self until I went to college. Right. Um, and another part of this, you know, even like in late, late high school, like I was able to listen to like kind of whatever I wanted, but it was difficult because I didn't have that much money. And this is a little bit before like iTunes era mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where you can just like listen to whatever you wanted and uh, download stuff. So, you know, I, I just growing up, you know, I didn't really, I wasn't exposed to any of these subgenres and like death metal or anything like this. <laughs> Although I, I loved it when I was able to hear it, like Metallica, it just was outside of my realm of like being able to be digested just because there was so much I didn't know about. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like I had a group of friends that was like, you got to check out this band or you have to look at this. And it was all just me on my own kind of wandering through you know, the music that I could get my hands on. So I remember I started when I was in like middle school and high school, I was really into pop punk and that translated more into more, more hardcore punk when I was in a senior in high school. And then a lot of my college years, very much into punk and uh, that kind of like went in a little bit to hardcore. And then I don't know, metal just started uh, speaking to me, you know, the really intense stuff. And, it wasn't until like after college that I started like finding out about. I, I had known who they were, but I never taken the time to listen to them, like Iron Maiden mm. and Judas Priest and all these greats that you know they're classics. The whole world knows about them, except me. It seems like. <laughs> um, so, but that also came at a time when I was, you know, I was in a place financially where I was able to like buy records or buy CDs and. Um, kind of really start like my musical journey and uh you know there's a lot of great used cd and record uh, yeah. stores here in chicago and those are the best just like yeah going through the bins like the old cd bins be like oh iron maiden best of the beast here's the time to get into maiden so i popped it in and i fell in love immediately and uh this is like oh gosh this is at least like eight ten years ago now um, but you know, and since then I've just been a huge fan of metal and, but it took a while to get there. Um, <laughs> took a while to get there for sure. <laughs> I, I have a similar experience. I only started listening to like a lot of, uh, different rock music, heavy metal, uh, classic rock, things like that until I, in, in into my twenties. Cause I grew up listening a lot to hip hop growing up. And oh sure. Where I grew up, that was, and the school I went to, that was, you know, the music that everybody was into. So I got heavily, heavily into that. But then when I started working, everybody around me was of a different age and they had different tastes. So I got that eclectic 
vibe from all of them. And it was, again, like a, a, an awakening of this whole understanding or appreciating all this other music that came before to kind of inform you. What were some of your your favorite things that you discovered during that time that for now are like in your must keep, you know, keep in the car CD type of type of albums? Uh, okay. Um, definitely Iron Maiden, definitely Judas Priest. Uh, Judas Priest's painkiller has been huge. Um, I have always loved the death metal stuff. Um, a big part of my intro into kind of the older school death metal stuff was a newer band called Horrendous. They're from Philadelphia um, that have kind of that old schools like Cynic and later death era uh, death metal, which is kind of proggy, which I really love. It's really fun to listen to. And as a guitar player, it's fun to kind of figure out what they're doing. Um, that got me into the older death stuff. Uh, so like old carcass, um, like the, the nineties records like Heartwork, and, uh, they just, they came out with a record in 2013 called 1985, which is an incredible record. Uh, those will not never leave my car. Um, one band that's not quite metal, but, uh, they're probably my favorite band ever would be, uh, me without you. They, uh, you know, they were kind of in that post-hardcore vein. Um, they were on Tooth and Nail for a really long time, that record label that kind of had these pseudo-Christian artists, but they weren't like BS like most of the other, most of that other Christian industry. And uh, I remember listening to them in college. They were a huge part of just my kind of emotional, like, carrying through of college and, you know, like, kind of rec- like trying to wrestle with kind of the, a little bit more of the um, conservative side of my family, you know, when I was growing up with this kind of new questioning of the world and being in college and out on my own. And Me Without You, you was there for me. So they have been a constant source of inspiration and uh, and comfort for me for many years now. Um, another big band that was on, that I was kind of, was on in my life and still is, but huge back in college was Converge, um, from Massachusetts actually. And they were kind of the first band that I listened to that just like was chaos the whole way through, you know, like, uh, with the screaming and the intensity of the riffs and the drums. And it was kind of my, the natural carryover from kind of this like post hardcore post punk, kind of vibe that i was getting into from the pop punk era mm. and uh, like then there was just the regular punk and you can you know, the hardcore punk and then converge came and just blew me away um and i saw them live in 2006 here in chicago when i was in college and it was just still to this day one of the most incredible live performance performances i've ever seen and they're another big step for me to getting into um more extreme music so yeah Awesome. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now it's funny that you mentioned hip hop because now within the past year, uh, the past few years, I've been slowly like dipping my toes into like the hip hop world. Okay. Um, Any and it particular started with era? Kendrick Lamar's, oh, okay. uh, it started with Kendrick Lamar's good kid, Matt city. Great album. Great album. Yeah. It was amazing. And, uh, then, you know, I wanted to start like, okay, so if this is the new stuff, like what it where does this come from so mm. um, down the rabbit hole 
is seriously and i have a lot of friends here in chicago that are huge hip-hop fans and they were making me spotify playlists and i'm like oh this looks great this is great and i found out about jurassic five nice <laughs> where like i, t- I talked to hip-hop fans i'm like i really like jurassic five and they're like yeah that's great it's like me saying that i like led zeppelin to a rock band <laughs> <laughs> um so i listen i so i listen to hip-hop now too which is great and i'm getting a very deep appreciation for it Two of my uh, favorite hip-hop artists actually are from Chicago, uh, Lupe Fiasco and Common. I don't know if you've listened to them yet. I have not. I think you would, I think you would appreciate, uh, if you like Kendrick Lamar, you might appreciate Lupe Fiasco. Very, okay. very uh, lyrical, but um, I don't know how to, how would I describe it? Every, every word counts. But sure. it's, it's not in a way that's unlistenable. It's still very musical. You know how sometimes you listen to it and guys are, they're, they're, they're wordy, but it becomes boring kind of thing? Sure, a yeah. machine gunning. Yeah, kind of. And you you've, you know Common, right? He's also an actor. He's more recognized now as an actor. John that Wick, baby. That's it. There you go. So, yeah, I love those two guys from Chicago. And there, once upon yes. a time, I was a big Kanye West fan, but I'm, I'm questioning him these days. Oh, I've never, I've, dude, I gotta say, I've never been on that train. Even from the beginning, I was like, I don't know about this guy. <laughs> yeah, you know, his his early days, he, he made some great records. Because he was a great producer before he be, even became an artist on his own. He was a really, okay. really great producer. So he's got a, a definitely a good ear for music, as much as his personality that, is, is the crazy. Fir- the first time he was on my radar was when I saw that Rolling Stone cover with him with the, the, the thorny, uh, 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 on oh man what's it called the thorns on his head like he's imitating like jesus yeah i lost him at that point when he was doing the whole jesus thing i lost him sure and like i don't care about the jesus thing but i was like this is just dumb yeah yeah that's it exactly yeah oh well oh well so let's get back into a little bit of comic talk when did you um venture into wanting to create comics because i i think if i'm not mistaken i watched the uh one of the videos of the you drawing rogue and gambit and i think that you said that you were teaching for a little bit before getting into comics yeah so i I got a degree as an art teacher okay um in in chicago that was what i went to school for and um, i ended up becoming a teacher for a little while and it was just horrible (laughs) um and you know my my wife uh, was like, I really think that you should try the art thing, illustration, um, to pay the bills because you're miserable right now and I don't want to be spend my time with a miserable husband. So um, with her support, I quit my job and I was kind of dipping my toes into anything that would pay and it was definitely all about like breadth, not depth with anything. And one of the small things that I was going into was comics. Um and I was just like, I've always wanted to do a comic, long form, sci-fi. I have an idea. I'm going to try it. And then that'll be like the thing that I work on when I have no gigs that pay money. So I would start out like Monday working on anything that I was getting paid for. And by around Wednesday or Thursday, sometimes even the end of Tuesday, I'd finish all those projects and I'd have nothing to work on. So I'd just work on Space Mullet, this comic that I was working on. And, you know, I was doing all sorts of illustrations. I was doing graphic design. Like, uh, I did zombie portraits at shows. Uh, I like comic shows. I was doing, like, uh, like the design for, like, 
car commercials, like with the asterisks next to the little cars in the middle of the newspaper, which was real fun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I always be coming home and working on Space Mullet that didn't pay. Um, And as I was as I was like continuing my career in illustration, I was finding that finding the like enough clients to really keep me afloat, you know. It's almost impossible because just people don't need illustration that often. And I needed to get into some sort of industry. And uh, comics just seemed to be the thing that came most naturally that I enjoyed the most, too. And so when Space Mold started getting noticed, that gave me a little bit of an in with Dark Horse. And uh, that's kind of where I got my start. Uh, so in that, in that way, I kind of was examining comics and I was like, well... It doesn't pay as well as like advertising illustration, but my advertising illustration gigs come like maybe a few times a year, <laughs> you know. And comics is like the money is not as good, but man, there's a whole lot more of the work. So um, I kind of fell into it that way. And um, when it started to become a possible like a reality, then I really started pushing myself. Um, and you know, as I was working on Space Mullet. It was very quickly apparent to me how little I knew about how to make a comic Hmm. and to plot and to, you know, character arcs and beats. And it's been a long journey. But, um, yeah, so the comics thing was like eventually I, like, started seeing it as an opportunity for me to go depth-wise into comics and not have to worry so much about all the ins and outs of different illustration and gigs and clients and things like that. So that's kind of how I got into comics and that's how I stayed in it. Do you feel that you needed to have that little bit of, um, in order to be like, to have that inspire, inspiration, that fire, you needed to have this one thing that you were going to invest yourself in that would, you know, uh, I don't know what the word is, but if all else fails, I got to go with this. Was that what, what did it for you? I guess you could say that sort of fear of to, to, that you needed to succeed? You know, at that point, I, you know, at no point were we, like, rolling in money. Mm-hmm. Uh, the opposite, actually, while I was, like, in that. This is, like, from 2012 to middle of 2013. And just barely hanging on by a thread, really. But we were really happy. Right. And uh, I was happy that I wasn't at this job, the school, the school job at teaching that I hated and... Um, I just wanted to be able to keep doing it, and yeah. there wasn't wasn't necessarily a fear. It was just a, uh, a a genuine like thankfulness that I got to do any sort of drawing, uh, mm. whether it be for car commercials or you know a bank or whatever. Um, that yeah, that got to be my job, and so I was thinking like, I think I can make comics be a reality. And, uh, as I, like the, the, as I kept working on space mold, that reality kind of came, it just naturally came for lack of a better word, just came to fruition, um, until I found myself getting paying work that people were offering me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's just at that point I was getting enough of it and it was paying enough that I could, that I was able to just kind of step from one end of illustration to the other of just kind of going, you know full in on the comic stuff so it wasn't so much of a like i have to burn everything to get on this ship it was more of like oh this ship is coming by i think i'm just gonna hop on right right um right. so and then it, it was just a very natural like one thing into another yeah i always hear people say you know when when you follow your passion 
and you're on like a lot of times we do things out of practicality, but we're not being true to what we love. And so we become miserable doing it. Whereas when you follow and follow through with that thing that you love, everything falls into place, it seems. And it seems like that happened for you. Yeah, I think a big part of it was that from day one, my priority was not to draw comics, but to write and draw comics um, and have that be the main, my main thing, the, my goal from the beginning. Um, so, you know, Space Mullet was me trying to prove to the world that I could do it. And it was Space Mullet that I referred to when I talked with Skybound about Extremity, uh, my book that I finished before I worked on Murder Falcon. Right. And, uh, yeah, so that was always the goal. And uh, I was just weaving my way through the industry as best I could in order to achieve that. Because that... I could see myself getting burned out on writing, on drawing for other people. Hmm. Um, and I saw other artists in the industry that have burned out <laughs> that right. have done that for years, you know, and they're uh, older now and they're, you know, they're not looking so hot at the conventions. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah. And like, no offense. I mean, like, it's just what I see. And like, you go to these shows and you're like, well, there's some artists that seem to be really thriving. And there are some artists that seem to be really having a tough time and, not even financially, but just they just don't look happy. They yeah. don't seem healthy. Right. And, you know, try, I started examining it. It seemed like the people that were doing the best were the ones who wrote and drew their own stuff. There you go. And, like, who are people that, you know, their people looked at them and be like, oh, well, he wrote and drew this comic, and it was awesome, and I, want, I cannot wait for his next project, which he will also write and draw. And right. So I was like, I want to do that. Right. Um, so, and that was the goal, and so that's what I've been shooting for. Were there any, as you were trying to figure out, like, cracking the code of making comics, were there any artists or artist-writers that you found inspiration in or kind of studied them? Well, when I was teaching, I was still reading comics, um, not a ton, but I was, I, was, I was reading some. And I was reading BPRD a lot at the time, and that's when I stumbled onto James Heron's work. Um, when I read a, uh, he did a, um, story called the long death in the BPRD universe that, uh, I read that book and I was like, I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen art like this before in American comics. And it, like, if he can get paid to do this, like if you can make money doing this, I have to do this too. <laughs> so I saw James's work and I was like, Oh man, I gotta make comics now. And that was one of my that kickstarted me on the journey of, you know, Space Bullet. So James has been a huge inspiration for me. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm looking at kind of the, uh, looking at one of my heroes also is Jeff Smith, mm. who did Bone. Um, definitely him with the kind of writing and drawing aspect. Um Paul Pope was a big one because he was writing and drawing and his style was so intense and fluid and different, but he was still finding success in the industry mm -hmm. that I was like, I want to emanate that. Um, and, you know, I was also seeing what Scotty Young was doing because uh, at the time he was working on the Wizard of, uh, Wizard of Oz. Yes, he was writing and drawing that. So I was looking at these guys and being like, these guys really know what they're doing. I want to have a career at least like them. So that's what I was starting to model my my comics after and my kind of my 
my goals. And yeah, they were a big, big port, big source of inspiration for me for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can see it in your work as well. Actually, it was uh, a question from Shane, the guy I mentioned before. He said, ask him if his, uh, if Paul Pope or Simon Roy are influences for him because he kind of sees that aesthetic in your work. So it's interesting that you mentioned Paul Pope as one of those guys. Yeah. yeah. Paul Pope for his like looseness and his, well, both of them actually, because Simon Roy is also a huge influence. I love his artwork and I love how, um, you can kind of tell that the way Simon approaches his drawing is like, I have a job to do. I need to tell this story and this guy's getting hit over the head with a rock. And it's just, I'm just going to draw this guy getting hit with a rock and it's just happening. And he's not like overthinking it too much. And it's very clear and really fun to look at. And it reads great. Mm-hmm. Like, and I really admire that about Simon's work. I can tell that he's not sweating over it, uh, which isn't to say that it looks bad. I think it looks great. But I can definitely tell when an artist is like having a good time and when he's not, <laughs> or right. when they're not. Um, and uh, you know, I can tell that Simon's having a great time making these pages. So I have some originals of his which I, I'm in love with, and there he's a big influence for me to, to always kind of keep it loose and keep it fun. Uh, and Paul's the same thing. So yeah, definitely those two for sure. Right on. So extremity. This reading this story. Uh, it's sci-fi, fantasy. Uh, it seems like it happens in the future, happens in the past. It's just great. But it, it feels like a story that you needed to tell. I'm not sure why it, it comes off like that, but there's a sense of urgency in this story. What was some of the inspiration of it for you? Um, well, I'd known that I, I really wanted to try uh, and make a book that uh, took itself a little more seriously than Space Mullet. Mm-hmm. Um and so the title, the presentation, everything about it is like, hey, this is going to be our journey that you should get on. Um, and without the necessarily, the, without like the tongue-in-cheek kind of element that Space Mullet had. Um, and, you know, I knew that I, I, I wanted, I, I had this idea about this uh, this girl who, who it basically a revenge story, but at the end of the revenge story, the character basically uh if not forgives the person who has wronged them but turns away from the natural the natural arc of what maybe a revenge story would entail and uh an almost kind of like staunch refusal of giving the audience what audiences expect when they maybe would read the first issue of something like extremity um with an almost uh, glory kill at the end of the series and um I was trying to, uh, you know, the whole me working on Extremity was mostly me trying to figure out how to do that in a way that was natural. And, um, you know, there was a lot of sleepless nights of me being afraid that people would think that I'd be being too preachy. But, you know, at the end of the day, for whatever reason, the story of this girl who decides to go against what her family has done for years uh, was put into my head and... I'm like, this isn't about everyone. This is just about Thea, this this one character in my head that needs to get out. Um, and at that point, you know, I hadn't figured out what kind of this... I hadn't figured out the artist portion of it yet. I, She was still just a regular person who had lost her mom and her family. She hadn't lost her hand yet. And the story just wasn't driving. I was kept having to put it on the shelf because I was like, this is just a dumb revenge story with this dumb twist that nobody will care about and think is stupid. Um, and 
you know, the, it was like turning into a story where I was like, it almost seemed like a mean spirited hoodwinking of what my readers would maybe interpret as. And, uh, it wasn't until I put like my fear of losing my hand and giving the story some personal stakes that the, the, that extremity really started to come alive and Thea started to come alive. And, um, yeah, so that's that's kind of where the the brain waves were with that project and the thought process behind it. Did, in in the in um, Murder Falcon at the end again when you you write that little essay, you mentioned that it was a, a difficult time for you during that creative uh, journey. Did that affect any of the story as you were putting it together, or was the story already flushed out before you had started putting pen to paper and, and drawing it and, and all of that? Um, you know, I was, most of the story had been mapped out or, or if not all entirely mapped out, um, it was very solid, like in a very solid structure. Um, so not, uh, not all of extremity was, uh, scripted out, but I was, you know, I was going through it and drawing it at a good rate. Um, and it, so it didn't really affect it didn't really affect my work on extremity extremity was almost like a separate entity you know I was almost able to like escape my kind of trials and tribulations through my art and like having to have a job that you have to focus on mm-hmm. and just be engaged with um, and you know it's almost kind of a blessing in that way because it just you know keeps you from obsessing from the things that suck in life right um, right and there were some days where you know it would things would be so bad that I couldn't even work on extremity, but those were pretty rare. Um, and also, like having a deadline and having to pay bills is a big, is a great <laughs> is a great like you know ass kicker. You're like, yeah, well, everything sucks. Okay, well, just you know, you have to make money somehow. So. Yeah, sometimes you need that, right? To to totally. get ahead. Yeah, totally. Um, but you know, for the most like you know, extremity was almost like extremity was going great. My career. Is, was going and still is going great um, in comics and my working with Skybound has been awesome um, no complaints at all and you know it was almost like going so well I almost felt like uh, you know it was like uh, I just knew when I was working on Extremity another thing that helped me through it was I knew that this was something that I was supposed to make um, and I knew it was like I knew I was supposed to make it. So that was a help too, where I was like, I think this is really supposed to happen. So having that kind of like confidence, I guess, which I don't necessarily feel like I'm responsible for was a big part of how I got it done as well. Yeah. It comes off like that too, when, when you're reading it. Cause at first it seems like, you know, high fantasy adventure, a revenge sure. story, but as it continues, you start to, to really identify with certain characters you know, so, um, for instance, Rolo, Thea's brother, who is looked upon by their father, you know, the, the leader of their clan, Jerome, as like a, a failure and, and not the, the heir to the throne that he was hoping for. But there's so much nobility to him as the story continues. Like there's so much in this story that as it unfolds becomes very um, a journey, like this discovery that you have. As you're as you're putting it together, are you what what are some things that you you may have was there anything that you learned about yourself as you tell the story of these characters? Um I learned that I, I have a lot of self doubt about my stories. Um mm-hmm. uh 
I was always constantly questioning myself as I was following the trail. I was following the trail of what these characters were telling me, uh, Thea especially. And um, there was just these like very these these arcs that were more or less coming very naturally of these characters, but I, you know they weren't necessarily making the choices that an audience would expect them to make. Um, I'm thinking specifically of, like the killer robot that like takes the battery out of his own body. <laughs> oh yeah, Shiloh, right? Yeah, Shiloh. Yeah, yeah. and uh, especially with the you know the climactic ending or the you know anticlimactic ending, for lack of a better word, um, or better way to describe it. Um, so self doubt was was something that has had been like that I was having to deal with a lot, and um, also learning how to. Um, you know, especially with like this project, like because I was I had never really gotten paid for Space Mullet, mm-hmm. and uh, it was being published with Dark Horse, but I hadn't seen a paycheck yet, and uh, mm-hmm. it was something that I had just worked on on my own, and it was on the internet, so it didn't really count. <laughs> just kidding, <laughs> internet <laughs> comics count too, but like you know what I mean, like, right, right, right. Like I was getting paid by Skybound to make this book, and it was like coming out on the stands, and people were responding to it in real time, and. It's just really intense, and uh, you know, I was having to basically uh, put that aside and be okay when a page would not look perfect. And that was a really good learning experience for me of being able to put my work away for the day, saying, "Okay, everything here doesn't look perfect. I don't feel great about this page, but like, I have to have dinner. Otherwise, I'm gonna go crazy." Right. Um, so that was good for me to learn, kind of like a healthy distance from the work and doing my best and approaching it in a healthy way each day and then being okay and leaving it at the end of the day. You got to be pretty happy with the reviews you get on Comic Book Roundup. That's my like go-to review site because it's the aggregate format, right? And and all every issue of Extremity is like 8.8, 9.2. <laughs> Like it's it's way up there as like the, one of the best rated comics, all twelve issues. So it says something about you know you your self doubt. Everyone, I think every creative person has that level of self doubt. But when you comes back that people love it, it all it's got to be you know a good payoff, at least for the moment, until the next issue yeah. has to come through. <laughs> yeah, and like you know it does feel good to get like a nice review, but like I've also had to like distance myself from that as well, where it's like, um. I have to. I, I I knew before Extremity came out that I was proud of the book, and I really did my best to keep that mentality, even in the midst of, you know, like good or bad reviews. Because um, like, yeah, like a few people like gave Murder Falcon a pretty low score, which is fine. You know, I don't really care, and because, you know, it's. I'm like I know what it took to make this book it was like an arm and a leg the creative process is brutal uh it's a rewarding but also brutal and you know i need to be proud of a project before i let it go and i could honestly say that about extremity and i can say that about murder falcon too yeah i i read the first issue of murder falcon it's a ton of fun it's awesome it's, dude. it's a great follow-up to you know being something that takes place in a in a world that you're not really sure when it is where it is now you're you've got this uh this guy that i think everyone can kind of relate to because he is from you know the city he's on earth and 
it's, yep. it's a great high, another high adventure. So before we go, I want to talk about Murder Falcon a little bit because it's it's hitting shelves now. And I found it interesting that Extremity has Thea who loses her her right hand, her her drawing hand, which is you know her her purpose in life is to create and to draw. And in in Murder Falcon, you've got the character Jake, right? Is if I remember correctly. That's correct. He he has his he's part of a band. His guitar is broken down, and he's kind of lost that love of or his purpose of playing the guitar. Was there is there something that you're you're a theme you're going with here, or was it subconscious that both of these are artistically based characters who are you know either musicians or artists, much like yourself? <laughs> well, you know, I I think it might I don't it's not an intentional theme. Um, I think that. I really resonate with characters that have lost something that allows them to be creative, okay. um, whether it be a, a mood or, or, or um, like depression is a big element of that, or um, physically being unable to make something that they want, or you know when a creative element of, their, of theirs, which is, was part of their identity, is taken away, and how they refine that, and it speaks to characters and speaks to being human in a lot of ways, and. Um, it's something that I think most people can relate to, um, or at least put themselves in the shoes of that character pretty well. Um, I also like I like it because I, I haven't seen it done a ton before, mm-hmm. um, at least in genre fiction. You know, like a character being creative. Yeah. Um, which is for me is I'm just trying to I'm trying to break the mold a little bit. I also want I want people to be able to have fun, but. Um, I'm trying to do my best to find new ways to, to to tell to talk about new character voices and to have uh, a new way to look at loss or redemption, and not necessarily through the tried and true lens of what we know as genre fiction today. So, um, you know, I I have plenty of stories in my head, but um, the ones that speak truest to me are the ones with of, of characters that have creativity in them well we all have creativity in us so so basically just about humanity I guess. yeah they're very relatable th- themes even though even if we don't draw or play music we're all creative in some capacity right so it's it's a relatable totally. emotion to to see these characters go through that is there what what's some of the different things that you're doing with murder falcon from extremity is there any different approach you're taking on, in the creative process um, it, I'm I'm definitely uh, approaching the scripts with a bit of a more loose uh, kind of aesthetic, where uh, if I have I'm learning to say yes to a lot of things that I would normally say no to in extremity, because um, extremity needed to have this kind of tone to it, which I feel like Murder Falcon doesn't need to adhere to, mm-hmm. um, and just from the title alone, the way the <laughs> characters look, it's a great um, band name by the way. Yeah, it's it's yeah. The whole the whole kit and caboodle, it forces the audience to engage on it on a different level than it does with extremity, right? Which is really fun. It's and, kind of fun. Uh, so I, I'm I, that's that's really cool. I'm also learning that along with that tone, trying to find a good balance between, uh, you know, emotions and emotional cores of characters and how I present that, along with this kind of boisterous intensity of just crazy action murder falcon happenings uh is a really big challenge and i'm learning how to write that i'm trying to write that better um it's uh yeah it's it's not easy 
but uh, it's something that I needed to learn because of the comics and uh, uh, and then uh, something different too. I'm also um, gosh, I'm trying to uh, again. I'm I'm I, I, I had to do this with extremities in some in some ways, but I'm also trying to figure out like how to be healthy as an artist when I make this stuff. So. Mm. Um, you know, not killing myself over pages. Right. Uh, I want it to look good. Like I want people to really enjoy it, but I also, I'm also continuing to psychoanalyze when I need to take a step back. Um, so that looks, that looks different on different days, but, um, it's always something that I'm concerned with as an artist is not burning out. So I'm always taking active steps to make sure that doesn't happen with each project. Right. So how, how many issues is Murder Falcon planned out to be? Is it another 12-issue series? No, uh, Murder Falcon will be eight issues. Okay. so going, I want it to be longer, but the story only holds weight for so long. <laughs> right, right, right. That's all good. And and I, do you find that it's um, helpful to put a, a, either a constraint or a limit on how long the story is planning to be? I think it's not necessarily a... It's it's almost more like what is the story, and then if if you know at least the relative arc of the characters, it's pretty clear when creating it for me when it needs to end. Right. And uh, you know, I don't. I know I don't want to be on a, a crazy long comic book uh, run because I just would it would kill me. <laughs> um, I need to be able to have a beginning, middle, and end. That's that, Those are the stories that I appreciate most as a viewer okay. and as a kind of like examiner of art. And so f- for me as a creator, um, I have this like staunch refusal to drag my readers through uh, what will eventually be a watered-down experience. You know? Interesting. <laughs> um, I had a lot of people ask, like, an extremity, like, the world is so deep, and... Yeah, I was thinking um, the same. It was, yeah, like, there's a lot there, and, like, I, I wish that you had taken some more time with it. And I was like, honestly, I totally hear what you're saying, but at the same time, if I had taken any more time, Thea's story would have started to get watered down. Hmm. And the story from the beginning of issue one, it's like, Thea has a journey. She's, like, on a mission, and one of the reasons that I feel like people responded so strongly to Extremity is like, yeah, issue one, you're like, dang, we're going places. Issue two, issue three, you're being pushed through the narrative in a way that has, it has an, it has a, uh, like you said, like an immediacy, like a, this story needs to be told, which, you know, I don't know what it is about. Um, I think it's just because if you make more stuff, you make more money, but, uh, stories that go on for a long time. I mean, just after a while, they stop speaking to me. Hmm. Um, like I need to have an ending. It's just like real life. Like everything has an end. And I, for me, when I'm making my stories, I feel like I need to do the same. Um, so I hope that that shows with murder Falcon where it's like murder Falcon at the end of issue one, no spoilers, but you know, he, he lays down like the quest <laughs> and you're wondering like where that quest is going to take these characters and the quest is only fun if you finish the quest at some point lose or 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 succeed um so eight issues and it will be a blast yeah that's great well i hope you're you're enjoying the the process this as much as we're enjoying reading it because i i think this is going to be a a good time 
So awesome. when we're reading Murder Falcon, what is the soundtrack that we're supposed to have in the background as he's playing? That's funny that you mentioned that. Um, two things. I'm making a Spotify playlist as we speak, um, which I'll be releasing soon on social media. And then also I have a uh, songs that I'm writing for uh, each issue. Uh, basically, in, the begin- in, in issue one, Jake ha- used to have a band called Bruticus <laughs> that he uh, was a part of until they broke up. And so in each issue, I reveal a track that was on the original Bruticus album uh, called Shredded to Death. So that is uh, bruticus.bandcamp.com. That's Bruticus with two O's. And uh, enjoy it. There you go. Awesome. I, I, I As I'm reading it, I'm like, there's got to be music to go with this. I'm sure there is. So I had to ask yeah. you that. So there is. Would you, would you, seeing that you like your finite stories, is there a, a character or a, a series with either the, the big two that you would, you know, love to leave your mark on or work with for a limited series if you had your choice? Yeah, I am really into Beta Ray Bill. Ah. Uh, I think I could tell an old man Beta Ray Bill story pretty well. That would, be, um, that would look great, especially with all the, the ships and monsters that you're so good at drawing. It would be so much fun. Um, <laughs> I don't. I, I. I've always kind of wanted to do a Dial H for Hero series. <laughs> okay. From DC Comics, um, I'm really into that, and like, but it would be with like a smartphone app instead of like a dial-up. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that's good. That'll work. Uh, yeah, uh, something that I could really have fun with, and that would be, you know, could get past the uh, the DC Comics kind of like pitch meeting, but also not have to worry too much about catering to like you know dc continuity right um i'm all about that so uh definitely dial h for hero and beta ray bill those those both sound very very readable especially with uh with your aesthetic i think it would work great (laughs) totally so before we leave i have uh, a final question to ask you i know that when you met your wife the question she asked you was what your favorite ice cream was yep so i'm gonna ask, yep go ahead go ahead oh you want uh, so my favorite ice cream no, no you were uh, you were about to say something and i cut you off no no it's just yes that did happen yes <laughs> which is a great icebreaker totally so i wanted to ask you what your favorite movie food is oh your go-to uh, definitely thing. gotta go with uh, reese's pieces the the okay the the cups or the actual pieces like the little the, ones the pieces like when we're going to the movie it's only Reese's pieces yeah. for sure the ET Reese's pieces the, the, yes I, those are that's my candy of choice to and I like I like the Maltesers as well like I find that the the sweet with the salty popcorn it's a it's a beautiful thing so Reese's way to go pieces. totally I I'm thumbs up for those answers. All right. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time. I uh, I hope you come back again when you're working on your next project or when Murder Falcon's done and we can chat a little bit more. And you know what? All the best to you. We're really enjoying your work. Thank you for coming on, Daniel. Thanks so much for having me. 